Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast, everyone. It's a very exciting day because Aaron and I here are on the phone with uh, a very special guest. Isn't that right, Aaron? Got it, Drew. We are on the phone with the acclaimed arranger, composer, band leader, educator, and so many other things, Mr. Andy Farber. Yes, he's written and arranged music for Wynton Marsalis, Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, John Hendricks, Shirley Horn, B.B. King, Ray Charles, you name it, he's probably done it. Uh, he is currently the director of the BMI Jazz Composers Workshop and uh, teaches at this small little school I don't think anyone's heard of called the Juilliard, oh, excuse me, Juilliard School of Music. Uh, rings, a, rings a bell, but I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast, uh, Mr. Andy Farber. How are you? I am well. Thank you, gentlemen. Absolutely. Uh, it's, we were excited to receive your email. I've been checking out your music for the last couple of weeks, and we both absolutely thank love you. it. Thank no you. No doubt. Thank you very much. Yeah, I discovered the podcast a little while ago when uh, David Berger hit me to it, and I've, I think I've heard them all by now. No kidding. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, that means a lot to us, so thank you for, uh, for listening and for... Uh, reaching out you bet he, yeah you, clearly it, it's uh it, you you believe in the quality of the program enough to uh submit yourself to our uh interviews so <laughs> well i have to tell you that i tend to talk a lot and i love talking about music and uh, perfect so this is great that's great we'll leave you well we will we'll keep the questions short and you can make the answers long i'm, I'm happy to answer long questions as well and medium-sized ones Perfect. Um, so we've, we read your bio, of course, and, and a lot of people have, but we were wondering if you could fill us, uh, start the questions off by introducing yourself a little bit, um, and particularly starting with how your uh, childhood and growing up in a musical family, how, the, how growing up uh, in that way influenced your career as an arranger and musician. Well, it's like this. My uncle Mitch is a composer and an arranger, a former saxophone player. I guess you would call him a recovering saxophone player, <laughs> who actually took a cue from my father. My father was a jazz drummer and uh, also played a little bit of saxophone, and uh, he's six years older than my uncle, and uh, so he was sort of the big influence in his life, and that's probably Certainly. why my uncle became a musician. Hmm. And uh, my Uncle Mitch uh, went to high school uh, in Roslyn on Long Island uh, playing the saxophone. And um, at one point, he had a high school jazz band. And uh, he organized, believe it or not, so this is in the early 1960s, he organized a jazz festival at Roslyn High School where he wanted to have a professional band, a college-level band, and then his high school band. Play. In the 60s? This is in the early 1960s. Wow. wow. So it would have been maybe in 61. I had the tape somewhere from the recording of the concert. So it was like this. 
My father at the time was going to Long Island University, uh, CW Post, and his best friend and uh, was a piano player called Carl Stroman, and you might be familiar with him because he's written so many big band arrangements for publication. You know, in the yes. old days, if you wanted to play big band music in uh, high schools, like going back in the 50s and 60s, you would be playing stock arrangements that would have been made for professional bands or those booklets. You've probably gone through those books where, oh, okay, here's, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, Johnny Warrington's arrangement of, uh, yes. you know, some I, standard I, like a Sentimental Journey, and here's the, uh, you know, Buck Clayton uh, orchestration mm-hmm. of the One O'Clock Jump, and then uh, somebody else's kind of transcription of, you know, maybe a, uh, you know, something from uh, uh, Benny Goodman's book, or, you know, we're going to play the Tuxedo Junction, or one of those kind of right, things, right? Right, right. Actually, I inherited like 300 of these little booklet charts from my wife's family, and I actually, I donated, we, we ended up donating them to the UNT uh, li- music library. But yeah, they're like, those things, there was, th- those were some serious charts. <laughs> yeah, I played a lot of those when we would play uh, big band club dates when I was growing up, and I was always the youngest guy in the band, so everybody else was just, you know, a fossil, although they were probably like 60 or in their 50s, so that's not a fossil, <laughs> but, but, you know, and I'd be the young guy, and, and we'd be playing at some country club, and it's, oh, okay, we're going to play um, Tuxedo Junction, and then we're going to play uh, Take the A Train, which was straight Strayhorn stock arrangement, almost the same as the Ellington arrangement, except that. Uh, it didn't have the pyramid at the end in case it was played by a smaller band, you know. Right. Okay. And, uh, you know, the uh, Jack Mason stock arrangements and the Johnny Warrington stock arrangements and the Abe Osser stock arrangements that everybody played in those days, you know. Uh, Spud Murphy, you know, all that stuff was published. In fact, Vince Giordano's band has a lot of those stock arrangements. Wow. No kidding. Yeah, they'll play, like if Vince Giordano's playing a private party, they have... Uh, he carries four books with him that have like 600 charts in each book, printed wow, front goodness. and back, you know. So, like, you could put, play number 240, and then he might call 240X, which means you flip the chart over, and Xerox on the back is another stock arrangement, you know. Huh. Grief. Oh, it's great. Wow. It's great, you know. So he's got, like, a 900 book. He probably carries around 2,000 charts with him, and then the rest of his house is just filled with stock charts. It's amazing. Holy smokes. And wow. I thought 300 was a lot. Right. <laughs> you know I mean? So you can call almost any tune and Vince has got it, you know. Sure. That's cool. So anyway, so my Uncle Mitch puts this thing together uh, when he's still in high school. And my father's band, which had Carl Stroman on piano, and uh, my dad played drums. And there was a tenor saxophone player called Don Worley that they used to play with, who was older than them. He wasn't in the school. But... Uh, that was the college band, and then the professional band he put together was, I believe, uh, Jackie McLean and Dizzy Reese and, uh, I want to say, Walter Bishop Jr. and maybe oh, dang. Gene Taylor and Arthur Taylor. Uh, excuse, yeah, right. I don't know if they were related. Uh, because my uncle had, had befriended Donald Byrd at music camp, which is now the hmm. Jamie Abersold camps. But at the time, right. uh, it was called National Stage Band Camps. Hmm. Wow. And he was, in fact, I just found a, a, a photo that somebody had posted on their Facebook page from the uh, camp the year my uncle was in it as a piano player. And Dave Sanborn's playing lead alto. And No oh, kidding. Wow. Yeah. That Dave Sanborn was heavily into uh, 
Paul Desmond back then until he heard Fathead and Hank Crawford, you know. No kidding. Yeah. Oh my gosh. David Sanborn sounded like Paul Desmond. Oh, he was into Paul Desmond and Phil Woods and Cannonball Woo! and that stuff. But then when he heard Fathead and 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 Crawford and Stanley, that was that was it for him. Yeah. That was wow. it. Yeah. Cool. So so that you know was in the uh what that was in the early 60s and um then he would go to these uh summer workshops and he befriended uh some other musicians his name Randy Brecker and um huh. a drummer called Vinnie Ruggiero who's like a, a Philly Joe Jones prodigy you know protege and they um. had uh, a little group together and they would go to these summer workshops in Boston at Berkeley, and he would study with George Russell and John Laporta. And then uh, sometime after that, he got to go to, to uh, the Fountain Blue in France and study with Nadia Boulanger and got heavily oh, wow. into uh, classical music also. So he became serious about composing and stopped playing the saxophone. Uh, so he went to DePauw University to study classical composition, but started a jazz group with uh, Randy Brecker and Gary Campbell and Ed Sof and uh, okay. a trombone player and bass player who are no longer in the business. I don't even know who they are. but um, hmm. And that would have been, I guess, in the mid-60s. You know, because those guys went to IU and uh, Mitch was at uh, DePauw. So okay. composing okay. Uh, became very big for him. And he started things like... Uh, he wanted to write a blues in all major and minor keys. So he started writing 24 different blueses, as if that's the plural of blues. And Jackie <laughs> McLean recorded one of them uh, in the late 70s called Monuments, which was actually on Jackie McLean's funk album. Yes, huh. yes Jackie it, McLean made a funk album. No kidding. That was, is the blues thing, uh, would it be called the, the well-tempered bluesier? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe if he recorded everything in one uh, album, one go. But right, this, this right, is, right. This is just the one, the E flat minor blues, which is a thirteen bar blues, and Jackie records it on that funk record, where wow. you know huh. the rhythm section for that is like Steve Jordan, Will Lee, Hiram Bullock, and Cliff Carter. Oh wow, smoke! That's nineteen seventy nine on RCA, and my uncle Mitch wrote all the tunes, and I went. I was ten years old. It was my first time ever in a recording studio, and I said, "This, I want to do this." Well, yeah. <laughs> mm, no joke. So between him and Carl Stroman, who, you know, beginning in maybe 1970 is now writing big band arrangements for publication that would be suitable for high school level bands. That was at Alfred Music, where the original writers was Sandy Feldstein, who ran that part of the publishing company. Hmm. Uh, and um, who else wrote for that? Uh, Tori Zito was one of the writers. And uh, Carl, and actually my Uncle Mitch did a couple of things for them too. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, Carl got into doing uh, wind ensemble stuff and um, things like that. In fact, when Neil Slater went to North Texas, uh, Carl got his high school teaching job. Wow. Oh, if he, I have that he straight. took over Neil's job? He took over Neil's job. And I can't remember whether that was at a school in Connecticut or a high school in New York in... Um, uh, what's a Mamaroneck, New York? But Carl's uh, high school job that he had for twenty, twenty-five years, he he inherited from from Neil when he went to uh, North Texas. Fantastic! So that was the so, influence. It's like, oh, I want to do what Uncle Mitch does and what Uncle Carl does. Carl wasn't really my uncle, but we still called him Uncle Carl. Sure. And um, that was uh, as I'm growing up in the 
70s, my parents and my grandparents had this Donald Byrd record called uh, Blackjack, which is a Blue Note record from 1965 or 6. And uh, they recorded mm-hmm. one, of my, one of my Uncle Mitch's tunes called El Dorado. So mm. I grew up, you know, even at four years old, I could sing all the solos on there. It's so like Hank Mobley and... Oh, my yeah. goodness. Peter Walton, Billy Higgins, Walter Booker, and Sonny Red on alto. I mean, this is how it's geeky just in your blood. I Yeah, I mean, for show and tell in nursery school, I bought it, brought in that record. I'm like, dig this, oh, wow. you know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you were the hippest four-year-old ever. That was pretty crazy, <laughs> I guess. I still love that album. Of yeah. course. A lot of boogaloos on that. And then uh, Donald Byrd recorded another one of his tunes on a record called Fancy Free a few years later. It was maybe the next year. I- yeah, I remember that record. Yeah, he's got a tune on there called The Uptowner. Oh, mm. wow. And Frank Foster's on that one. I think Lou huh. Tobacken and Jerry Dodgen and uh, Duke Pearson, I think, is playing piano. Oh, geez. Perfect. Playing electric piano. So that one's like Fender Rhodes piano. Ah, uh, trying, to, trying to sell those records, uh, I guess, a little, get that modern well, you sound. Know, a different <laughs> sound, you know. Mitch yeah. told me that when Donald, Donald Byrd became fascinated with... Uh, with James Brown, and that really changed his musical direction. That's when he started the Blackbirds in the 70s. Huh. Oh, okay. So I wanted to write music and uh, just yeah. make, make up my own stuff. And, and Carl and, and Mitch taught me how to notate stuff and you know, give me score paper. And I, you know, I didn't know that you weren't supposed to use uh, you know, pen because I had gotten this. My uncle had this fountain pen that he got at King Brand in New York. This guy, Wes Cowan, that started that company in 1939 was still there in the 60s and sold him this fountain pen with a music nib. So I was learning how to do calligraphy and I wrote a score in calligraphy. And one of my uncle's friends is a composer ranger, David Matthews, who's kind of big in Japan these days. Huh. He had a band in New York for a while that was kind of based on that 70s era Gail Evans band where they had three reeds and uh, right. like two trumpets, trombone, bass trombone, or tuba, and French horn, and a four-piece rhythm section. Huh. Uh, so Dave was a friend of my uncle's, and I remember showing him a chart that I wrote when I was like in the fifth grade, and it was in pen. And huh. he says, oh, only geniuses and fools use pen. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided well, I had to great. use pencil after that. You were writing a chart in fifth grade. Yeah, I wrote my first big band arrangement when I was in the fifth grade. Oh, That's, my goodness. My next-door neighbor, That's... or actually lived three doors down, was a trombone player named Jack Carmen. And Jack had dropped out of high school to go on the road with Don Redmond's band huh. and found himself at the age of 17 or 18 sitting in between Butter Jackson and Tyree Glenn. Wow. Wow. And then after uh, Redmond's band folded, he went with Boyd Rayburn's band and then was in Buddy Rich's very first band in the late 40s. And he got drafted, went to Korea, and uh, came back and got his GED and went to university and then master's degree and became a public school music teacher. So he was my band director in the fifth and sixth grade, as well as my Mm. neighbor. So he allowed me to experiment and write stuff for the band. Jack was great. Wow. There seems to be kind of a a common theme with a lot of the people we've interviewed is the the fact that their band directors gave them the opportunity to write some stuff for school ensembles yeah if if you had a band director that was a jazz musician that was supportive of what this was you were very lucky indeed Mm. 
And I know that, uh, you know, Rich DeRose's father, Clem, who actually had taught in my high school for many years, was also encouraging for uh, young people to, yeah. to write and try different things out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess that probably was one of the first big opportunities you got <laughs> in fifth grade. Yes. When you had this uh, wonderful teacher who encouraged you and, and, and played the chart that you wrote. Right. Uh, that's beautiful. So what, what happened next and what were some of the, the, the next milestones that uh, it seems like you were just born to do this and that's beautiful. What were some of the other milestones uh, along the way as you continued to progress in your career? Well, there was, actually, there was a lot of great uh, music education things starting for jazz at that time. I guess it was a not-for-profit, and it was called the International Art of Jazz, IAJ, before IAJE was a thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, at that time, that was NAJE, the National Association of Jazz Educators. Mm. Uh, so IAJ had workshops for high school and college-level musicians that wanted to learn to play jazz. And on a Monday night, uh, Monday nights at the uh, SUNY State University of New York Stony Brook campus, they had a workshop. And then on Saturdays at a high school in the next county over, Nassau County, there was a town called Hempstead. And they had, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a workshop there. So I began going when I was 10. So this is 1979. And the saxophone teacher was Bud Johnson. I'll pause while you Google Bud Johnson. Okay, <laughs> Bud Johnson I, uh, was a contemporary of uh, Ben Webster and Lester Young, and played in Lester Young's family's band when Lester was the drummer. Oh wow! Right? I'm sad I'm not hip right now. Well, he he, <laughs> he not, recorded hip, with Count Basie in the '50s. He's on the Live at Birdland record where John Hendrix scats on Whirly Bird. Wow! Uh, oh, wow! And okay. he's in Quincy Jones' "Birth of the Band" video where he's uh, you know trading tenor choruses with Jerome Richardson. Mm. And he's on a Gil oh, Evans man. record. I think it's Into the Hot or Out of the Cool oh or one of those. Oh my gosh. How am I mm -hmm. sleep how 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 are we sleeping on this guy? Yeah, no, Bud Johnson was was also an arranger. So he was the music director for uh Earl Hines's band and was in that. Oh group. no kidding. Yeah. Sure, okay. So Bud was great. And uh he was uh I I guess I knew him until he died, which would have been in nineteen eighty three when I was fourteen. And uh, the other teachers wow. there were, uh, there was a trumpet player called Dave Burns, who had been in uh, Dizzy Gillespie's early big bands, mm. and made a few records as a leader, but if you look up Dave Burns, he's, uh, he's kind of on the scene in the early days of bebop, and then he wow. got into music education later in life, and he lived into the 90s or early aughts, I can't remember exactly when he passed, but uh, you know, mm. late 90s or... 2000, something like that. Uh, and then another saxophone player came in after uh, Bud Johnson, which was Chris Woods, who hmm. had been in Clark Terry's big band and small groups. And uh, then Chris died in 84. He made a record for Delmark in the early 80s, and Jim McNeely's the piano player on that one. So. Okay. And then uh, Arnie Lawrence took over that, and he was the saxophone guy. Hmm. And Arnie Lawrence was really a mentor to a lot of musicians in New York. He had started the jazz program at uh, the New School for Social Research, which is now oh. New School University. Huh. And then he moved to Israel and started a school there. Wow. 
And his uh, his son is also Eric is a fine saxophonist that plays all kinds of music. Hmm. Um, and his daughter's a singer, and you know, just uh, uh, Arnie Lawrence was just a great spirit. He was sort of known to. I rem- my father told me that he remembered him from the Tonight Show because he was one of the soloists and uh, possibly the lead. I think he was the second alto player on the Tonight Show when Carson was the host and they were in New York City. Okay. No kidding. Yeah, he didn't move with the band to L.A. when they moved to Burbank in 72, but he had been in the band uh, for some years. <clears throat> he was also in this group that was an early repertory band that Chuck Israels led for a while called the National Jazz Ensemble or National Jazz sure. Orchestra. And Arnie was, I think he may have been the lead alto player, but... Um, you know, Arnie was in that band, and uh, Bobby Keller and Kenny Berger and David Berger played fourth trumpet in that band, which is where he started doing his transcriptions of Duke Ellington. And uh, the late Mike Lawrence was in that band. It's a great trumpet player who died far too young. Mm, but uh, you can look that mm. one up too. National Jazz Orchestra with Chuck Israel. So they were doing Ellington repertory before Jazz at Lincoln Center existed. Uh huh. I see. Uh, I'm so going that off was on kind a of tangent, a precursor to what we would think of as the Lincoln Center type thing. Well, yes, because the first few years of jazz in Lincoln Center, they were playing a lot of Duke Ellington transcriptions, some other stuff too, Cy Oliver and <clears throat> whatnot, but uh, primarily as an Ellington repertory band for a couple of years. I see. And, uh, I see. This was very similar. There was also something called the American Jazz Orchestra, where the uh, John Lewis was the music director. This would have been hmm. in the mid to late 80s. Okay. The repertory was starting to be a thing. People were saying, oh, we have to uh, play this music and preserve it. Not as a museum thing, but you know, it just sort of deserves to be heard live, especially Duke Ellington. It just never goes out of style. You know? Of course. Right. Speaking and, of, um, I was just going to ask you about that very topic because um, you're obviously an expert on his music, on Ellington's music, and I was wondering if you could maybe speak to that a little bit. What, uh, what drew you to his music, and sort of what do you, what do you take from it? What do you hear in, in his music? That <clears throat> Well, maybe... initially, I must tell you, it was David Berger that drew me to it, because I really was infatuated with hard bop growing up. Okay. I just love those records, those Riverside and Prestige and Blue Note records. Mm. And yes. uh, to me, you know, composers like uh you know oliver nelson i loved oliver nelson and gg grice and tad dameron and that kind of stuff and i also love the basie band because the count basie band is like cake it's just ear candy and you (laughs) smile and you snap (laughs) your fingers and you tap your foot right and uh david berger uh, hit me to ellington i didn't really know much about it other than Hmm. the things that were on the um the Smithsonian collection. There was a box set of records that Smithsonian put out where they had Coco mm-hmm. and uh, a couple other early Ellington things, but it didn't really register with me until I started studying with Dave. And I think the first thing that really just knocked me out and actually made me mad, why didn't I know about this earlier, was the album Such Sweet Thunder. Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love that piece so much. So what is it about that particular piece that... Um sort of attracts you to it i guess extended concert works uh, 
that are almost like our jazz equivalent of uh, large classical suites where, um, you know, every member of the band had something to do at one point that would feature them. So it ha- every piece had a personality and you got the feeling that this doesn't work unless it's those individuals playing that, mm. those parts. Um, right. Mm. He was so personal. Mm. It was very specific choices. to his band. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but also the development of just a few ideas. Mm. One time Dave Berger took apart Harlem Airshaft, which is, I don't know, 1940 or 41, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's three minutes or less, and there's only really three things that happen in it. And everything huh. is based on those three ideas. And the amount of juice that Ellington is able to extract from those ideas is just amazing. And you walk away listening to that, thinking you've you know heard a symphony, but you know, it's two and a half minutes, had a lot of material in there. But it's really not a lot of material, if you know what I mean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a wow. certain austerity to it that isn't really evident in the first listening, but once you sort of dive into the scores, you realize, hmm, he really develops just these ideas and tells a story where, you know, some composers will write down what they hear, and if they hear a lot of stuff, it's like having a play where there's new characters in every scene. This is a <laughs> this is a play, you know, a one act play with the same characters in it, um, but they get to show their full range of emotion. I guess. Mm. I've I've got to say, you you sound just like Rich right there because that is like to the T the meta a metaphor that he would use. He would, I mean, I, well, Richie I, was one of my I, teachers also. <laughs> He, there you go. <laughs> yeah, he was at the Manhattan School of Music when I got there. And I had mostly theory classes with Rich, but you know, right? Yeah, that's a that was that was beautiful. beautiful. That was a beautiful moment right there. And I, and and here I'm I'm sure you're doing the same thing, Aaron. But when I when I do my classes over here in Colorado, I find myself doing the same thing. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. This, this is like uh, when you put when when you when you have an octave, it's like a spotlight on the note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. Exactly. Uh, oh my goodness. Um, well, that's pretty hip. So, uh, I, I, I'm maybe wandering a bit, but just to get back to no. um my thought was because I was a terrible student in in high school, I just was thinking about <laughs> music all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> I I figured I'm never going to get into a proper university. And the only schools <laughs> that had jazz programs in those days would have been North Texas, Miami, and IU. If you didn't count right. Berkeley. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh boy, I'm never going to get into there. So uh, I should, uh, you know, try to get into conservatory, which at that time was classical music only. So uh, okay, uh, <clears throat> my old roommate Andy Dalkey would hate me for saying this, but at the time I thought hmm. classical saxophone was stupid. <laughs> Dalkey, of course, has his DMA in plas- classical saxophone performance, but um, right, <laughs> I thought, and, and my clarinet playing was awful, and I couldn't get the flute out of the case, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> in the seventh grade, I took up the oboe. Oh, and really? I thought, okay, classical mm. oboe. <clears throat> but when I was a senior in high school, Arnie Lawrence had started the jazz program at um, the new school, and uh, they started an undergrad jazz program at the Manhattan School of Music. So I'm like, all right. So my senior year consisted of me cutting class to go hang out at the new school. Hmm. 
you know, just no kidding. Like blow off school and take the train in Manhattan, go to the new school and hang out with those guys. And uh, oh boy, they had a lot of great players there too at the time. Mm. Peter Bernstein, the Larry Goldings, and oh wow, uh, an saxophone player called Jay Rodriguez, who's really great. And I mean, all these mm. Jesse Davis, I think, ended up going there. Um, so I thought I would do that, but my father talked me out of it. Um, he said, no, you should really go to Manhattan School of Music because it's, uh, you know, they have a reputation. They've been around a long time. And, uh, you know, it's a well-respected institution. So I, uh, I think that was the only school I applied for and I got in. But I had been going to their summer workshops there. And Rich DeRosa uh, had taught at the summer workshop. And uh, Dave LaLama, who's another uh, arranger. Of composer. course. And, um, An establishment. So that that was a nice scene over there. Hmm. So I ended up going there as a saxophone major, and I wanted to study composition. The uh, composition teacher I really had eyes to study with was Bob Brookmeyer. Sure. Oh, my gosh. And Bob said, well, I'm only really handling master's students, but why don't you do a year with uh, someone else, and then we'll talk, you know. So uh, I became the first undergrad jazz composition major at MSM because at the time they mm. were only offering it for master students and uh, David, wow. and David Berger became my teacher and by the way he was an old friend of my uncle Mitch also because they had gone to and you may have heard of this but Eastman School used to have a summer program called the Arrangers Holiday oh okay and Ray Wright who was of kind of the head of the program there and Manny Album they ran this thing so my uncle mm. was there at the same time as uh, my dad's buddy, Carl Stroman, <clears throat> and a trumpet player from Long Island, Mike Carubia, was mm. another student there, and David Matthews, and uh, Ellen Rowe, and I think uh, John LaBarbera. I don't remember who else would have been there at that time, but uh, Bill Reichenbach. What a hang. Oh, geez. What a hang. Yeah. So, uh, David Berger. So I think, uh, Mitch may have known David Berger from Long Island, but they, uh, they became friends back then. So I, I, I studied with Dave and, um, and at that time, uh, you know, Brooke Meyer, he just, he wasn't having it. I mean, he was grumpy, but I would try to, you know, get as much information out of him as I could. Mm, sure. Uh, but I, I stayed with Dave for uh, the rest of my undergrad. Although I'm a, I, I, I didn't, I actually kind of quit school early because I was working and one thing led to another and I didn't finish until 10 years later. And one, oh, no oh, kidding. Okay. And I had to come back for one semester like 10 years later. So I studied with Micah Benny when I came back. Oh, nice. Oh my gosh. You, you, you just couldn't find anyone to really get a good grasp of musical concepts. No, it's but... hard to find people in New York that know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, That's I love awesome. Mike. Mike is one of my favorite people. Like, what a what a he's just so vivacious and uh, just uh, you know energetic, and it's it's uncanny almost. I I just love his how he talks and breathes. Oh, he's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I really like that, and uh, I should have probably studied with Manny at the time, but Manny was slowing down and and hmm. wasn't. Uh, wasn't really doing well at that time. Okay. I think he died maybe a year or two later. But in the mean, you know, in the, the 
time between leaving school and coming back, I was already working as a uh, saxophone player and uh, writer. Wow. Yeah. Just so, be, be, there's enough work in the scene. Well, nepotism doesn't hurt either. So my uncle knew a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a firm believer in that. Uh, so what my uncle had a good friend called Warren Schatz, who had one time been the A&R guy at RCA Records, produced a lot of disco, really. Hmm. So he started working at a record label as a producer, and they were doing these mostly cabaret singers. So there was a singer, a cabaret singer, wanted to cross over into jazz called Ann Hampton Calloway, who's somewhat known now. Um, and at that time, she was sort of known as being the, the well, she was the lady that wrote the music, uh, the theme, and sang for that sitcom, The Nanny. Mm. Oh, sure. With uh, Fran Drescher? Right, yeah. So she, okay. she, she yeah. at this point, I had already been writing for John Hendricks and a few, uh, a few little things here and there for Jazz at Lincoln Center. And I had already done a tour with the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra playing one of the tenor books. Oh, geez. Okay. After Bill Easley left. And before Walter Bland, Walter was living in Israel at the time. So I mm. played with them on and off from 95 through 97. Okay. And uh, we had done John Hendrick's 50th birthday, excuse me, 50th, 75th birthday. I wrote most of those charts. And uh, then this opportunity- Was this when David Berger, oh, I'm sorry. Was was that when David Berger was a director of the Janet Lincoln Center or? Just after. Oh, just after. So Winton was leading the band at this point. Oh, okay. okay. Be- beautiful. But uh, I-, I think no one was really leading the band on the concert. Winton was playing up in the trumpet section. Okay. Sure, sure. And uh, so this is all around the same time. So this is mid-90s. So I get this opportunity to do about a third of the Anne Hampton Calloway tribute to Ella Fitzgerald record. Mm-mm. And they let me contract the horns of the band. It was going to be definitely like they wanted this rhythm section. It was going to be Cyrus Chestnut, Chris McBride, and Lewis Nash. Oh, geez. And, and Winton <laughs> as one of the soloists. Certainly. So Warren was producing it, and he let me write uh, most of the big band stuff. And my Uncle Mitch was going to do the string arrangements for the tunes that were just rhythm section and strings. Oh my goodness. And um, he let me contract the band. So I was just mostly getting people that I knew, old, you know, of different <clears throat> generations. But I got, um, you know, Sherman Irby, I think, was on it. And, of course. Uh, mm. Jerome Richardson and Joe Temperley and Bill Easley and um, my old roommate, Andrew Williams, on trombone and my buddy Holy. Wayne Goodman on trombone. And uh, Britt Woodman goodness. played lead. So we got Brid on there. I'm trying to think. I had Roger Ingram and Dan Miller. And uh, and how old were you at this time? Like 27, maybe. 26, <laughs> 27. That's, woo. And you were writing charts for Cyrus, Chestnut, Sherman Irby, Witten, and all those. Oh, my goodness. Right. Well, Sherman what, is what one of my closest friends. I met him when he started working with Winton, and then we really became friends when we were on the road with the Lincoln Center Band. Mm. Sure. And he's still one of my closest friends. We talk all the time. Um, and he's That's a great beautiful. writer. He'd be good to talk to Oh, my to goodness. Too. Yes. I've heard a number of his charts with Jazz at Lincoln Center. One of my favorites has this 
really long extended plunger solely. Oh yeah, it's like one of the one of my favorite things I've ever heard. This just super expressive thing, mm. and I'm like, you're a, you're a saxophone player. How do you know how to do all that crap? Well, he sits <laughs> in front of that stuff all the time. It's true. It's true. It's yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> the guy though that really is unbelievable. I mean, one of the great voices in in writing modern jazz, uh, uh, you know, large ensemble stuff is is uh, Chris Crenshaw. Oh my hmm. goodness! Incredible. I love Chris yeah. Crenshaw's writings. He and Sherman really have their own voices. Mm. I mean, they all do. I mean, Victor's got his thing, and you know, Ted yeah. Nash, of course, is uh, you know Ted, beyond Ted category. Nash, yeah, and and Vince, of course, too. Yeah, man, all the absolutely all, all the guys, incredible. I think almost incredible. everyone in the band writes. Uh, Kenny Rampton is starting to write, and huh. uh, I don't know if uh, Paul or Nimmer really write anything, but. Um, Boy, they play enough of their instrument, though. Boy, Dan Nimmer is a walking encyclopedia of the history of jazz piano. Oh, hmm. yes. He's incredible. What a chair to... The rhythm section in that band in particular just... I mean, I mean the horns obviously have their thing, but the, the rhythm section, man, to, to play in that band, the amount of versatility and flexibility is uncanny. It's, like a, it's, it's unlike any other ensemble that I've ever heard, really. Right, because they have to play everything from 20s music to stuff that hasn't been invented yet. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Right. But I must say, when yeah, I did Mark. it, I had the pleasure of being able to, to, to play <clears throat> you know, with Herlin Riley every day. Ah, mm. yes. And Herlin was magical because he would even say, oh, you know, I'm not a jazz drummer, I'm a drummer, and swing is one of the grooves I like to play, but I like to play all kinds of grooves. And we, right. we did a concert with Wayne Shorter, and it wasn't the Lincoln Center Band. It was an orchestra, a chamber orchestra, and there were a few horn players. So it was like me and Ryan Kaiser and Ted Nash and... Um, oh, geez. Uh, Kenny, was Kenny Rand? No, Wayne Goodman was on that. And strings and a rhythm section. And McBride was playing electric bass, and, mm. and Herlin wow. was uh, playing the drums. And I'm sitting very close to Herlin at the rehearsal, and they play this funk tune. So imagine this groove. So Herlin plays on the bass drum and the snare drum, like spoo, spat, ooh, stone, da, foam, bit, ooh, stone, bat, right? And then on the ride cymbal and the sock cymbal, he says, ding, jank, dang, jank, dang, at the same time. It's the swing in his thing mm. with that funky thing. And I'm looking at him with my mouth open. I never heard that. And I couldn't believe that one human being can play that. And Herlin oh just God. looks over at me, and his eyes widen, and he goes, that's some shit, ain't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it is, Mr. Herlin. Classic. But uh, yeah, that's when I beautiful. did the Lincoln Center bin, it was Herlin, Ben Wolf, and Eric Reed. Oh, wow. So that was, man, Herlin, another guy, beyond category. Yeah, that's incredible. So when you're... Um... Thinking about your voice as an arranger and a player, do you think that there's some kind of um, crossover between the two? Oh, yeah, I think so. But it's interesting because a lot of there are writers that have a different personality than they're playing. And I think uh, mm. sometimes it's very similar. Like you could really tell, uh, as an example, Oliver Nelson's playing is, is soloing is very methodical and similar harmonically to his writing. Whereas uh, right. Bob Brookmeyer's playing is almost 
kind of retro in a way. Yeah. And his writing it's... could be uh, more progressive. Right. Sure. And I don't know if one is stronger than the other because his playing is just so rich. But it's yes. almost yeah. like a different character at times. Uh-huh. And, and maybe yeah. you could say the same thing about Thad Jones' playing and writing. Right. Hmm. Uh, or yeah, Frank Foster's playing and writing. Right, because Brookmeyer's playing sounds kind of like in that cool jazz vein. Well, you know, the line is everything to him. So, you know, he plays extended lines, but uh, there's something in there that has the DNA of the older school, like Jack Jenny and, you know, sure. pre-JJ, you know. Yeah. And without yeah. the sort of heart on the sleeve of Benny Green, the trombonist, not uh -huh. the piano player. Uh, whereas the writing seems like another extension of his personality, showing you something else that he doesn't right, reveal sure. with the horn. Huh, interesting. And you might say the same about Mulligan. Huh, sure. Yeah, I, I, I feel that. I, I guess I, I, I probably should confess I'm more familiar with more of his his earlier writing stuff, like the concert jazz band, so the sextet stuff, but I feel like that for the m most part is it, it's more controlled and his playing maybe more free. Mm. Is that a fair assessment? Or I think it depends on the era, but uh, uh, you know, there's sort of the, uh, the 50s, 60s mulligan, and then there's the more contemporary mulligan. Mm. Man, I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm not hip. Well, they. You know, tell, he had another group. He had another group in the '80s. In fact, I think it was oh, uh, Rich DeRosa in that band. He was actually. That's, That's right. right. I think Richie was in there. There's a great trumpet player, uh, Chris Rogers, who uh, is now in his uh, mid 50s, but he was like the hot young trumpet player in the '80s and. Uh, the great lead alto man Chuck Wilson, who just passed, was in that band. Mm. Very, very right. good group. That uh, was Ed Rosenthal in that band, maybe. Um, I have a recording of it somewhere. What was the album? I'm. I need to get. I need to get hip. Oh, now I'm trying to remember more proper nouns. Oh God, uh, I have to <laughs> dig it up. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Yeah. 80s. Yeah. Well, this is part of why we do the podcast, is because you know. We uh we love learning these new things. So anything you got to throw at us, you know, that we should check out, we're we're all game. Oh, check out everything that's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what what about for yourself personally? Uh, writing and playing and the and the the balance of the voice. Do you how do you feel about that? It's, well, I've actually never thought about it. Good question. Yeah, they're they're probably a little different too, and it's changed over time. So when I was in my 20s, I was really obsessed with Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn after mm -hmm. being obsessed with Oliver Nelson and, and Duke Pierce and that stuff. And I was really trying to reverse engineer that in a way. Like, how can I write something that sounds like Duke? You know, because you want to learn and sometimes by imitating other sounds, just like when you learn to play. It's like, oh, I'm going to learn this uh, Johnny Hodges solo. I'm going to learn this Charlie Parker transcription or whomever. And you mm -hmm, copy mm -hmm. people. And I was heavily into listening to lots of different stuff. So if I copied everybody I liked, I wouldn't really sound like anybody. You know, like sometimes you hear people now, it's like, does that guy only listen to Kenny Garrett? Right. right. Yes. You know? 
And like, yeah. well, take that back. Where did Kenny get it from? Well, maybe like Gary Bartz, or maybe like Jackie McLean, and uh-huh. maybe like Sonny Red, who's also from Detroit. And uh, mm-hmm. you li- listen to who your influences listen to, and before you know it, you're back at Sidney Bechet and Coleman Hawkins. <laughs> right. Nat- naturally. Yeah. And, Le- yeah. and Lester Young. So growing up, you know, I was heavily into tenor players like uh, Coltrane and Hank Mobley and Dexter Gordon. And uh, great. And my uncle, because of the people he knew growing up, he would give me uh, records of his contemporaries. So he said, "Listen to this," and he would give me uh, Steps Ahead records with Mike Bracker on it. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, who else did he have? Um, Joe Farrell. And I started listening sure. to that stuff. And Dave Liebman and and Steve Grossman and Joe Henderson. And uh, I decided, oh, you know, that's. I want to be progressive. I want to, you know, push this forward and see what, okay, Joe Henderson did this, and then his disciples are Mike Brecker and Carter Jefferson and uh, and uh, Joe Farrell, and what did the guys mm-hmm. after that do, you know, and I wanted to be very contemporary, and with the writing also, and, and David Berger said, well, you know, you want to be an innovator, you got to be a master of everything that happened before that. I said, oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. You know? Because and he would say, well, you know, Brookmeyer is. I said, oh yeah, that's kind of true. So I kind of right. went back to the beginning and started listening to, you know, Don Redman and and uh, McKinney's and and uh, early Ellington, you know, from the twenties, and mm. working my way back up to cutting edge. And I think I've gotten about as far as nineteen sixty eight <laughs> in the last thirty years. There's that much stuff. There, there's so much to cover. And so yeah. I got to ask you, what, what did that start like? I mean, obviously listening and repeated analytical listening and score study. And then what? Like in your, in, speaking personally, Ace or maybe studies. even what you tell your students to do. Well, my students, I have them, at least in my grad class, I have them do what I call a case study piece, which is mm. I want you to, and it's a thing they did in architecture, but it's not quite like that. I want you to write, I mean, we do this in theory class where, oh, you know, you got to write four part choral music in the style of Bach, you know, a Bach chorale with the rules and all that. Mm-hmm. So I have them do their first big band assignment, which is to write a Kansas City riff tune. Love it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. Like a, you know, a late 30s Count Basie riff. Old Testament riff, Basie. Old Testament Basie riff chart. Like a one o'clock jump type thing. Exactly. Yeah. And Woodside and... That kind of stuff, uh, nine twenty special, you know those things. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. oh, what's his name, the trombone player, uh, Jimmy, uh, oh, Eddie, Eddie Durham, mm-hmm. like an Eddie mm-hmm. Durham type thing, just as a case study piece. Like, try to make it sound like that, because if you can mm-hmm. imitate that and make that second nature, then this will be in your DNA and your your bag of tricks, right. And then, you know, the next thing I have them do, maybe like a New Testament basic thing, like uh, I have them listen to Neil Hefty and er- Ernie Wilkins and Billy Byers. And, Billy Byers, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, every note that, you know, Ernie and Billy wrote makes me smile. Yes. Uh, that stuff is just <laughs> ear candy, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and clever. I mean, I'm not going to say that, you know, Ernie Wilkins wrote with the m- most counterpoint by any stretch of the imagination. Sure. No. Although Manny Albums music is like 
Ernie Wilkins with Brooke Myers' counterpoint. Oh. You know what I mean? It's like the phrasing yeah. and the aesthetic and the economy and the humor in it is kind of related to Ernie. But yes. the uh, ca- contrapuntal uh, uh, linear aspects of it, to me, is more related to um, Mulligan and Brookmeyer. Sure. Like the sure. best of all of those worlds. Yeah. And then I think Gigi Grice and, and Tad Dameron and uh, a guy that nobody re- seems to remember anymore, A.K. Salim, hmm. wrote yeah, uh, in that sort of... It sort of bridges the gap between swing and bop. You know what I mean? Okay. Like the horn player yeah. equivalents of that would be the trombonist Benny Green or Gene Ammons or Frank Wess or that kind of plan, Sure. You know, it's a little bit of bebop, a little bit of swing, a little bit of something else. And it's yeah. really designed to make you smile and tap your foot and celebrates the blues without being uh, just stuck in. Uh, you know, diatonic harmony, but there's linear stuff that develops over a longer phrase. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at the arrangers pod happy writing and hope to see you next time